You're listening to Michigan News from MLive on Friday, August 25th. I'm Patrick Shea. It's been a busy week for MLive reporters, and yet they're still taking the time to fill us in here on the podcast. We'll hear from Gus Burns about a court case in Antrim County where three men are being tried for the attempted kidnapping of Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Then Matthew Miller and Melissa Frick break down their story on why some of Michigan's best teachers are calling it quits. After that, we'll head to Ann Arbor, or just outside of there, where private wells are running dry. Lucas Smallsick Larson fills us in on the gravel mine that may be responsible. And finally, the month of August will close out with a rare treat for Skywatchers, a super blue moon that will be the last of its kind for more than a decade. Reporter Emily Bingham tells us when and where to catch it, so stay tuned until the end of the episode for that. That's all coming up here on Michigan News from MLive. We're starting off in Bel Air today at the Antrim County Courthouse. That's where three men are being tried for their attempt to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer in 2020. MLive reporter Gus Burns has been following this case and joins us now. So it's been three years since this failed kidnapping attempt. Maybe jog our memory a little bit. What's this all about? All right, going back to early 2020, this was when the coronavirus was taking off and there was a lot of anger in the community as Governor Whitmer and governors across the nation were putting in uh, restrictions on people, making them stay home. Um, A lot of people in Michigan weren't that happy about that and that led to some protests in Lansing and a group of uh, men and militias who people used weapons often and were familiar with them began to meet up and kind of discuss their anger with the government. And that led to the formation of a plan that eventually the FBI said included uh, attempting to kidnap the governor and start a civil war, hopefully. And they hoped that that would spread across the nation and change governments. And there was a sweep in October of 2020, and 14 men were arrested and accused of plotting to kidnap the governor and potentially cause violence with other police. You mentioned there are 14 people charged in connection to this plot. But this case being heard in Antrim County this week involves three individuals. Tell us a bit about the defendants. So of the 14, six were charged in federal court, and the remainder were charged in under state laws in Michigan. Uh, three of those people were charged in Jackson County. That trial is concluded. They were convicted. And then there were five people on trial in Antrim. And that is the last trial that has yet to be concluded. Two of the people took plea deals. Three are on trial now. And Gus, what's been learned about the motivation behind the kidnapping plot? I mean, you mentioned this a little bit, but you have a story on our website with a quote from the case in the title, they wanted a civil war. Can you expand on that? Like, what's the big picture behind what these kidnappers were trying to do? Well, I mean, it depends who you talk to. Uh, some people play it off as it was just people kind of fooling around and role playing as these anti-government people who love guns and they're kind of buffoons. And then when you look at the government's point of view, they're saying some of this talk was was violent and they were actually moving forward with it. And the two leaders who are now sentenced in were sentenced in federal court. They're serving 16 to 20 year prison sentences. A jury found them guilty and believed that they were trying to get some violence to occur. And they they were progressing as far as having training sessions. Um, the government covered recordings of them all discussing some of these violent plans. And really the goal was to disrupt the government and to hopefully change things as they existed and to stop these governors they felt were overstepping their bounds. 
obviously these charges are very serious, but what have the defendant's attorneys had to say so far this week? So far, they've only given the opening statements and the attorney, there's three people, uh, William Null and his brother, Michael Null. They're 41-year-old twins. And then the third defendant who's on trial is Eric Molitar, a 39-year-old from Cadillac. And Eric Molitar's attorney, William Barnett, is probably the most vocal in the opening statements, at least. He gave the lengthier of the two opening statements. And a lot of what he is saying is his client was unaware of what was going on. He actually supports law enforcement, but he was also uh, into guns and, and training. And he was trying to start a security business. And he somehow got wrapped up with these people who had you know, more dangerous plans, and he didn't really realize it. And also, he keeps pointing towards a lot of the FBI involvement. They had an undercover agent who he he says is basically kind of encouraging these people, including his client, to do things that may be increasingly violent or on the edge of being illegal. Yeah, that, that brings up what I wanted to turn to. I remember when the news of the attempted kidnapping first broke in 2020, And when arrests were made, it was widely reported that, like you said, a double agent with the FBI had helped expose this plot. But there were also some questions at that time of entrapment that perhaps the agent had actually encouraged or maybe even facilitated the kidnapping plot in some way. Has that idea of entrapment come up in this case? Yes. uh, And actually, it's kind of a legal wrangling thing. But the judge has said they're not allowed to claim entrapment. That's essentially saying that the government committed almost a crime of the crime of their own by um you know doing something they're not supposed to do during an investigation but the idea still persists and i think that is what the defense attorney is trying to include he's not saying that my client didn't do what you're saying he did he's saying he did it these explaining it away a little bit saying these are the reasons and they had for instance like one of the main guys they call him informant undercover informant dan um he was part of one of the Wolverine Watchmen groups, and he started hearing chatter that was concerned him. It was about violence towards police, and he's reached out and got connected with the FBI, and then he ended up being an insider throughout all of this. Like, a lot of his recordings are what's going to be played in court, and he also, according to the defense attorneys, you know, he was kind of leading these trainings. He seemed to have more know-how than a lot of the other people, and in some ways, he seemed to be, they say, encouraging this behavior. Yeah, and maybe even though entrapment proper has been ruled out from these proceedings, it sounds like the the concept is something still coming up um, from from the defendant's attorneys. And Gus, lastly, could you just give us like a real-time update here? We heard opening statements this week. Where's this case at now, and when might we have a verdict? There were two days of jury selection on Monday and Tuesday of this week. Opening statements were yesterday. They ran till about 3 p.m., and then the uh, prosecution called their first witness, which was a FBI agent. He's going over a lot of the recordings, some of the stuff they found on social media and in their secret chats, um, encrypted chats they had. And uh, in total, I the one of the attorneys said it's expected to take three weeks before the trial concludes. And then the jury uh, will go to deliberations. And who knows, with all the information they have to go over, how long that will take to reach a conclusion. You can read Gus's work to stay on top of it along the way. Gus Burns is a reporter with MLive who's been following the trials of three men who were part of the attempted kidnapping plot of Gretchen Whitmer at her summer home in Antrim County. You can read his coverage at MLive.com. Thanks for being here, Gus. Thank you.
We've been talking about the Great Resignation for a couple years now, also called the Big Quit or the Great Reshuffle. In the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, employees around the country and around the world have been leaving their jobs in unprecedented numbers. Their reasons for quitting are as many as their number, but some vacancies have left big shoes to fill in Michigan's classrooms. On MLive.com, you can read a deep dive into why some of Michigan's best teachers are calling it quits and what it means for the state's education system. That story was written by reporters Melissa Frick and Matthew Miller, who are here to tell us more. Good morning to you both. Good morning. Hello. So you reported that thousands of Michigan teachers have retired or just left the profession in recent years. But your story focuses less on the simple number of teachers leaving and more on a loss of experience in Michigan's classrooms. Why did you approach this story with that lens and what did you find? We actually set out initially to do a story on why teachers were leaving. But as we got into the state data, the more interesting story turned out to be who was leaving. If you look at kind of what's happened since the start of the pandemic, um, the first year, you know, 2020, fall of 2020, most teachers stayed put because like everybody, there was a lot of uncertainty about what the future was going to hold and people didn't necessarily want to leave jobs if they had them. But the following fall, what we see is a lot of resignations and a lot of new teachers as well. But what was interesting was the changing composition of the state's teaching workforce. You look a couple years prior to the pandemic, the fall of 2018, and about 45% of all teachers in Michigan had 11 years of experience or more. And last fall, it was down to, I think, about 35%. So you see this pretty big shift in, you know, a pretty big departure of the most experienced teachers. And Matt, what's the impact of losing those teachers with a decade or more of experience? I believe you wrote about a sort of ripple effect that that can have. So decades of research have found a pretty strong correlation between experience and effectiveness among teachers. Everyone agrees there's a pretty steep curve, or almost everyone agrees there's a pretty steep curve in the first three to five years of teaching. But some research has found you know, additional impacts that go on even into, you know, two or three decades of teaching. Teachers who are more experienced, on average, their students learn more. And it also helps students on non-academic things. Their students, you know, have better attendance. And some research has even found that experienced teachers in a school building improve the results for other teachers' students. So they're a source of advice, a source of mentorship, uh, you know, their presence is just useful kind of across the board. And it's hard to quantify the loss of that. Absolutely. You know, I'm also curious to know what's driving these teachers away and where they're going. Melissa, you interviewed one teacher in Rockford Public Schools who made a career change. Tell us about her experience. Yeah, so she was teaching elementary school kids over in Rockford, which is um, about 20 minutes away from Grand Rapids, and she loved her job. She went into it because she wanted to develop the next generation of critical thinkers, and she also just loved engaging with their kids. Um, They were fun and interactive, but ultimately it was, you know, the low pay, the long hours, Um, The burnout, um, feeling like she was just devoting too much of her life to the job that made her decide that um, ultimately she could find a better job with less stress where she could devote more time to her family. She had a newborn son at the time. 
And so she found a job at a bank uh, where she works a more regular nine to five job where she leaves the stress behind once, you know, roughly five o'clock hits the dot. Whereas before she was coming into the school building, you know, past 5 p.m. coming in on weekends. Um, now she's just feeling less guilt, like she should be always doing more. Um, and she's just a lot more relaxed now. It's it's more of a peaceful job than what she was used to in teaching. And Melissa, with her and other teachers that you spoke with, what role did the COVID-19 pandemic play, maybe directly or indirectly, in these decisions to, to move on from teaching? Yeah, that's a good question. I think there were a lot of longstanding issues in public education well before the pandemic, but what I've heard is that COVID was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, you know, if we remember back to March 2020, teachers had to quickly pivot to teaching from a laptop and, you know, how do you create a curriculum for that? Um, and even teachers who had taught for decades were all of a sudden blindsided by this and had no idea how to go about that. And then throughout the pandemic, you know, that be- became easier, but with things like mask mandates and COVID isolation, you know, having to miss weeks of school, of in-person learning time, um, that just became too difficult for many of them. And so while some of them maybe stayed around for the first year or so of the pandemic, you know, that was a big reason for a lot of them deciding to leave a career that many of them loved. Absolutely. And you mentioned salary. How much does pay have to do with this trend? And do you feel some of these teachers are leaving simply for better salaries? I can say that for for the teachers that I've spoken to, absolutely. I mean, um, the teacher that I spoke to in Rockford, she talked about how anecdotally, you know, she knows so many teachers who can't afford to live alone. They have to live with a roommate or live with their parents. Um, And, you know, if it weren't for being married to a spouse that's in a different field where they make more money, there's no way that they're able to afford, you know, saving up for a home or a car or some of those other big life achievements. Um, and she she watched her husband, you know, being in the business world, being able to move up the ladder and make more money. Um, whereas she saw in her own field, she was kind of constricted to either you stay a teacher and you're um, kind of constricted to that pay scale where eventually there's nowhere else to go. Um, and it's based off years of experience. Or you move up to being an administrator, um, which isn't much better and comes with a lot more responsibility. Um, So for her, she just saw greater opportunities for her family in terms of saving for the future and for her son if she left teaching. Yeah, I mean, if you if you look at national comparisons, Michigan's teachers start lower than uh, than teachers in other states. I think the average starting salary for teachers is about thirty nine thousand dollars a year. Um, It rises ultimately to a little higher than the national average. The average Teacher salary overall uh, it, last year, I believe, was about fifty-seven thousand. So I think the national average is something like fifty-six. So it's pay for teaching as a profession is an issue, but pay relative to other teachers is mostly an issue at the start at the start of folks' careers. And what about the school districts themselves? Are our school districts making some efforts to try and slow this trend? And how might they convince experienced teachers to stick around? Yeah, schools are definitely competing for a smaller pool of those experienced tenured teachers, um, and they're doing anything they can to get creative and try to convince those teachers to stay. Um, For example, West Ottawa Public Schools has um, launched a 50K initiative starting this fall, the fall of 2023, 
all starting teachers will be paid um, a starting salary of $50,000. Um, we've also got Holland Public Schools, which is uh, pledging to pay the home down payment or part of a home down payment um, for teachers who decide to move to the district. So they're all trying these unique efforts and doing what they can with funds that's available to them to um, kind of convince these teachers to choose their districts over surrounding ones. Melissa Frick and Matthew Miller co-authored a story about the recent loss of experience in Michigan classrooms. You can read that and more of their reporting at MLive.com. Melissa, Matt, thanks again. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you so much. The showerhead in Robin and Steve Kunkel's home sputtered and gave out entirely. It was July 7th, and the couple had just returned from vacation to their home off a dirt road across from an organic farm just outside Ann Arbor. They had no water. Well drillers arrived and informed them that their well, trusty for at least 28 years, had gone dry, and its pump fizzled out. At first, the couple had no idea why. They now believe they have an answer. That was reporter Lucas Smallsick Larson reading the intro to his story published this week at MLive.com. Lucas, keep it going. What was the answer? What's happening to well water outside of Ann Arbor? Well, it's a little bit of a, an open question in the, the case of these two homeowners, Stephen and Robin Kunkel. Uh, they're a little over a, a mile away from this uh, gravel mine, sand and gravel pit, now owned by a company called MidMichigan Materials. And, and wells much closer to the mine uh, have been running dry or, or experiencing big level drops, like 17 or 20 feet. That's because of the mine's operations. They're, they're pumping millions of gallons of water out of their pit on a daily basis uh, to extract this sand and gravel uh, that's used in road construction, buildings, um, a lot of different, different industries. So uh, I don't have a, a solid answer for you for the, for the Kunkels. Um, the, the mine says they may believe they may not have affected uh, their particular well, but at least in the case of, of homeowners who are, who are right near the, the Vela pit, as it's called, the, the officials I've spoken with have said there's no question that, that it's the mine. And what's the extent of this problem? I mean, how many wells are we talking about in the area that have reported these issues? And yeah, can you just give us a picture of, of where this is happening and to what extent? Yeah, and I, I think that's a question that's still being answered um, now. Uh, the, the information I got from uh, the Michigan Department of Environment, Great Lakes or Energy, often called EGLE, was that as of last week, they had uh, reports of 12 wells in the area running dry and requiring some kind of fix. Um, there's a residence group uh, that goes by Save Ann Arbor's Wells that, that say they've documented about 25 cases of uh, either wells going dry, uh, having big uh, level drops, or experiencing some kind of like water quality issues or concerns. So th- there's various numbers depending on, on who you talk to, but, it, but it's somewhere between a, a dozen and, and 25 that have had some kind of issues. So the mine operator, MidMichigan Materials, what has their response to this been? Are they aware of the issues that may have been caused by their water withdrawals? Yeah, so I've spoken uh, with the mine's vice president, Rob Wilson. He says that they learned about these issues for the first time in April of this year uh, from residents and sort of quickly sprang into action. Uh, the, the way he framed it, that, that the mine had no idea this was going to happen. They had hired a consultant who, who said this dewatering process wasn't going to affect nearby homeowners, but it ended up doing that. Um, so they are, uh, have commissioned their own sort of hydrogeological study where they're trying to build a model of the aquifer 
which is sort of challenging because they, they need good data to do that. And the data they're using are, are well logs when these wells, homeowner wells were drilled. So that's a process that's going to continue. They're going to drill some monitoring wells. So they've got this ongoing study that they say will let them uh, sort of predict if and when other homeowners might be affected and sort of step in before that, before they run out of water or before their wells run dry. Um, but the mine company also says they're paying for uh, new wells or to lower pumps in existing wells uh, and have done so for nine homeowners as of Monday. And there was a 10th that they were reaching out to and trying to get in touch with. So I understand that the Ann Arbor Township Board met to discuss this issue at a meeting on Monday. Do you know anything about what came out of that meeting? Uh, sure. So the Ann Arbor Township Board of Trustees met on Monday night. It was their, their regular meeting, but it was anything but a, a normal night for, a, for the township. Uh, so it was held at a, a larger auditorium at Washtenaw Community College. I'd say there were at least 100 people in attendance, uh, some 60 or 70 people tuning in via Zoom. And, and it was a long meeting. Uh, I, I think about 30 residents spoke. A lot of them were angry. Um, a lot of them were worried about what's going to happen to their water in the future. And a lot of them wanted the township to take action. So the, the township has uh, issued a zoning permit for this mine. Mid-Michigan Materials took it over in 2020. Uh, it's been operating for more than 60 years, but under a different company. They bought it and said they wanted to expand operations, put in a new plant that's more modern. Um, so to do that, they had to go through the township approval process. They did that in 2020 and got a permit. Residents around the mine alleged that there are violations of that permit. Uh, and I think the most revealing exchange at this meeting happened uh, at 1130, uh, almost midnight, when a, a township trustee sort of confronted the, the mine vice president about whether this pumping, this dewatering process was something that they had told the township would happen. Um, and the way he framed it, the, the mine had told officials that uh, they weren't going to affect water outside of the mine. They weren't going to be doing this kind of thing. And the, the, the mine vice president sort of refuted that, said we got all the appropriate permits from the state we need to um, for, this, for this operation. But it sort of indicated that the township uh, could be considering some kind of action to issue violations for its zoning permit. It's called a conditional use permit. Uh, and actually, the township voted just around midnight to consult with their attorneys over what they called potential violations of that permit. They didn't say what those would be, but um, sort of that exchange kind of illuminated what, what might be coming here uh, on the township's end of things. Well, I'm sure, Lucas, you'll be staying on top of it and we can tune in to hear what happens with this sand and gravel mine near Ann Arbor. Lucas Smallsick Larson is a reporter for MLive by way of the Ann Arbor News. You can head over to MLive.com to read more of his coverage on this sand and gravel mine that's caused some nearby wells to run dry. Lucas, thanks for your time. No problem. Thank you. Have you heard the term once in a blue moon? Or maybe you're like me and you've even said it without really knowing what it means. MLive reporter Emily Bingham is here to explain what it is and when you can catch an especially rare blue moon next week. Hi, Emily. Hey, Patrick. So first off, what is a blue moon and does it look like the ice cream? No relation to the ice cream. The moon will not actually be blue. Um, there's actually a couple different definitions for blue moons, but the most generally accepted one has been around since the 1940s. And that is when you have two full moons within the same calendar month. So... What might we see next week, weather permitting? It's being called a super blue moon, right? Yeah, so uh, stargazers will want to mark their calendars for next Wednesday, August 30th, 
when we will have a really special full moon. And we're calling it a super blue moon because there's a couple different things that are particularly cool about this full moon. So not only is it a blue moon, it is the second full moon to land this August. It is also a super moon. Now, super moons happen a couple times of year. They occur when the moon reaches peak fullness at the same time as it is closest to Earth in its roughly 28-day orbit cycle. So to have both the second full moon in a calendar month happen at the same time that it's hitting perigree, which is the closest point to Earth, is incredibly rare. NASA said that the next time this will happen will be roughly 2037. And so what will it look like Like when the moon is at its closest point and it's orbits Earth? How does it look different than than any other night? Yeah, well, it might appear to keen-eyed stargazers um, bigger and brighter than a typical full moon. Um, If you're somebody who doesn't really pay attention, you might just say, oh, it's a full moon. But especially when it's on the horizon, it should look uh, quite a bit bigger and brighter, up to 14% brighter than uh, a non-supermoon. Very cool. So Wednesday, when should folks head outside to catch this rare phenomenon? And where should they look? You know, besides up, obviously. (laughs) Well, the full moon will be rising around uh, 8.30, slightly before 8.30 Eastern time. And the moon will be rising at the east-southeastern horizon. So people can go outside if you have a great view of the horizon, like um, just a really clear view without uh, woods in the way or even better waterfront view. You can go out before 8.30 to see it, and it will be reaching peak fullness at 9.36 p.m. Eastern time. So that's when you can look up and say, I am seeing the super blue moon at its peak awesomeness. Yeah, I'm definitely going to try to catch it. Emily, do you have any sky watching plans? Are you, are you planning a super moon party or something? I'm not planning a super moon party, but I do really enjoy um, all things night sky and stargazing. So I'll probably look up and just uh, enjoy the moonlight. Um, I, that's one of the things I love about the full moon is how bright it can truly be. But I would say the, the one flip side of a full moon is that it tends to wash out the stars. So for somebody who wants to say, look for cool stars or constellations, you're actually best off planning that around a new moon, which is two weeks after a full moon. Well, hopefully for those that want to catch this supermoon, the skies stay clear, the clouds stay away for the night, and we can catch a glimpse of this phenomenon that won't happen for likely more than a decade. Thanks, Emily. My pleasure. And that's a wrap on this week's episode. You can find out more about these stories and countless others from all around the Great Lakes state at our website, mlive.com. And if you need your sports fix with football season right around the corner, be sure to check out our athletics podcasts as well. The Spartan Confidential, the Wolverine Confidential, and our Detroit Lions podcast, The Dungeon of Doom. Thanks for listening to Michigan News from MLive. I'm Patrick Shea. Have a great weekend.